0: Uh, We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. And we are continuing our series on the encounters with Jesus, looking at various encounters through the Gospel of John, showing us who Jesus is and who we are. I mean, when, when we see the encounter with Jesus, we very clearly see who Jesus is and what our response to him should be. Now, this morning, we get to one of my favorite encounters with Jesus, because it's the story of Thomas. And we don't just know him as Thomas, what do we know him as? Doubting Doubting Thomas. And the reason I love this story so much is not just because Thomas doubts and Jesus walks through a door, a locked door, and shows him his hands and his side, but the reason I like this story so much is the gentleness of Jesus shown towards Thomas, and shown towards those who have doubt, shown towards those who struggle to believe. So we're going to read John chapter 20, starting in verses 19 through 29, if you have it there in your Bible. If not, it's going to be on your screen. Now just to set the stage, just to remind us from last week, Jesus appeared to Mary and he told Mary to go and tell the disciples that he's risen and that Jesus is ascending to my father and your father. So here we pick up in this same frame of mind because we're starting on the evening of that day, meaning on the evening of resurrection morning. and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now there's a lot of uh, direction I think that we could go with this passage. It's a big passage of scripture, especially Jesus' first encounter with the disciples and breathing the Holy Spirit on them. But what I want to focus for us this morning is with Jesus in doubt. Jesus, Thomas, in doubt. Doubt in the believer. It seems like a bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it? The two don't seem like they can go together like oil and water, doubt and the believer do not seem like they can coexist together in the same person. And so the question is, can a believer doubt? Can a believer ask really hard questions and be skeptical or question or doubt the goodness of the Lord? And I think at times it's our tendency to discourage doubts or at least not to be honest with them or to point them out, not to allow space to ask honest questions because if we poke or pull at it, what if our entire faith unravels, right? It's a bit like our favorite sweater. You know if you have a thread that's sticking out of it and you start to pull at that thread, what happens? It just keeps going and going and going and going. And so we're afraid that if we pull at our doubts, it'll ruin our favorite sweater. It'll ruin the very nice faith that we've put together. And we're afraid that if we don't stop pulling, that the whole thing might tear apart and leave us completely exposed. And what a terrifying thought that is. Especially if you've been a Christian or raised in the church for a long time and you start to begin to ask questions about faith and you don't really have solid answers, you don't know what to do, and then all of a sudden you don't know where to turn or what to believe or even if it's true at all. For Christians, doubts can either serve us or sink us. It can drive us to seek the truth or drown in hopelessness, confusion, and despair. And doubts left unchecked can begin to metastasize over the entire body, spreading throughout our entire being. So it's important, therefore, for us to know how to handle our doubts, and I believe that this passage helps us to do that. So if you're a doubter or a skeptic here this morning, welcome. This is a safe place for you, the doubter, the skeptic, the confused. It's a safe place for those who have honest questions seeking honest answers. Doubt shouldn't always be a stigma in the church we ask for prayer for nearly everything, for sickness or situation that's going on, but very rarely do we hear the prayer request that says, I'm seriously doubting my faith, and I need help. If that feels funny to you, if it feels funny to talk about doubt in the believer, that the believer, maybe you think that the believer can't doubt, that you you can't have doubt in the believer, they can't coexist, let me read to you uh, some of Jude's words. Jude is Jesus' half-brother, his little brother, And I think that we see some of the gentleness of our Lord has rubbed off on Jude. This is what he says in Jude. Well, it's just one chapter, but starting in verse 20. He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. I'm thankful I'm thankful for the man who doubted Easter, for his doubts help our doubts. His experience can help to shore our faith, because unlike Thomas, we don't get to feel the nail-scarred hands, and we don't get to put our hand in the side of Jesus, but like Thomas, Jesus meets us where we are at in our doubts. And he doesn't scold us for our doubts, but rather he invites us to examine him and why we can believe And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna examine the claim of Jesus, and we're gonna look at it in these three ways. Why we doubt, reasons for doubt, answers to doubt, what does the scripture say about our doubt, or what examples do the scriptures give about processing our doubt, and then lastly, what the story of Thomas teaches us about the heart of Jesus towards those who doubt. Now I don't know if you've experienced a season of doubt or not in your life. If not, praise the Lord, if you are just like remaining strong in the faith, I want to encourage you that that might not always be the case. You might have some series or questions of doubt come in, and doubt can seem strongest when our world weighs heaviest. When our world weighs heavy, our minds are consumed. Nothing seems to go the way that we planned, expected, or proud. Doubt is this feeling of uncertainty or skepticism, and in this case, in spiritual things, So maybe you have experienced the loss of a loved one. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you thought that the Lord had led you in this direction and then it all fell apart. And then you begin to doubt. You begin to doubt yourself. You begin to doubt the Lord. You begin to doubt everything that you've ever done, potentially. Now, Thomas doesn't give us the reason why he doubts, but he gives us what it will take for him to believe. His faith is in crisis, and the testimony of Mary and the other disciples are not enough for him to believe. So what happened for Thomas to have such a ferocious response to the disciples to say, I will never believe. I will never believe until I feel the holes in his hands and the hole in his side. What I believe that it says for us is that the crucifixion really happened. Now this touches on a point from our sermon last week but Why is Thomas so incensed at the, the testimony that Jesus is alive? It's because Thomas saw the horror of the Roman crucifixion come down in full force on Jesus. Jesus wasn't just killed. The man was tortured. He was whipped 40 lashes minus one. The flesh of that beating would have been ripped off of his side the nails that were driven into his forearms and feet, the crown of thorns that was thrust into his skull, the spear that punctured his side, causing water and blood to gush out. I mean, consider what Thomas saw and just the sheer amount of blood loss alone in Jesus. Thomas is going to say, maybe you think you saw him, maybe you had a hallucination, maybe it was a dream, but no man, no man can be alive after that. In fact, I will not believe until I see it for myself. In other words, Thomas's doubts were live and in color. He saw it full frame. Now for many of us, well, for all of us, we've not seen the crucifixion. But for all of us, or for some of us, we have seen our doubts or our life full, live, and in color. Now, many people have different reasons for doubting, but it's often because they have experienced it firsthand. Maybe it's a church scandal or institutionalized corruption or hypocrisy in the church. Maybe it's witnessing a good and faithful believer suffer horribly. Maybe it's suffering horribly ourselves. Failed relationships, a person we love that let us down, especially a person that we love that was kind of like our Um, Just maybe a father or mother in the faith that let us down. Like they sin terribly, and we we just think, man, if if their faith crashed, what faith do I have? Because they seem to have it all together, and now it's not. One of the hardest things about doubt, one of the hardest things about doubt is admitting that it's there. Doubts can start small. Is there any point in praying? Does God even hear? Does God even care? Is God even able to do anything about it if he did hear and he did care? Is God even there? Faith at times can feel like a wobbling Jenga tower. You know the game where you have to pull out the blocks and if you have a doubt and you push or pull on the wrong block, your entire faith will crumble And this is why I think Jude gives us this admonition to be merciful towards those who doubt. Doubt is a tender place to be. And I want you to hear it from me, that if you are going through a crucial season of life and a crucial moment of doubt, your questions are okay. God is big enough to handle them. And if his his word is true, which we believe it is, it is the authoritative word of God, then we can trust it, because we can trust Jesus. I believe Paul speaks to this tender place of doubt in Colossians chapter 2, where Paul is praying for the church. He says this, that he's praying that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." And he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Meaning that there are people that are coming into the body that are causing people to doubt. And the argument is plausible. And so Paul's prayer is for us in that tender moment to be built up in all the knowledge and wisdom in Christ Jesus. So what's important for us to know is why we're doubting. We have a lot of different reasons for doubt, but it's important for us to name it specifically. Are you doubting God's goodness? Are you doubting God's love for you or God's ability to work things out? Are you doubting that God is even there? Reasons for doubt vary from person to person. And if you're experiencing doubt, teetering on the edge of wondering if you even believe at all, here is my first encouragement. It's not even mine. It's to be honest with your doubt be honest with your doubt, and take them to Jesus. For example, I wanna show you Psalm 73. The Psalms are a wonderful treasure of prayer and song for us. It's a wonderful treasure of lament and praise because we also get to see people who have wrestled with serious doubts with God. And in Psalm 73, we have Asaph. And he starts off the Psalm by saying this. Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. He starts off with this declaration, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But you know what he says after that? But for me, my foot almost slipped. And then he says this, I envied the arrogant he says this in Psalm 73. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. They say, how would, you, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, free of care, amassing wealth. And hear what he says. Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Here's the truth that he's declaring that God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But for me, surely I've kept my hands pure in vain. Because it says, All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. What is Asaph doubting? God's goodness to those who are pure in heart. Because in his world, it seems that the arrogant and the wicked are those who are prospering and that it is vain that he's kept his way pure. Scripture gives you lanes for your doubt. If you doubt, you're not alone. The Scripture is full of those who have doubted God. Adam, Eve, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, David, Elijah, and at different times and different places, they all doubted different God for different reasons. Every believer goes through or can go through seasons of doubts. Doubt's about faith. Doubt's about calling. Doubt's about your marriage. Doubt is a part of being human. More than this, doubt is an inevitable, inevitable part of the Christian experience. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about doubt. He says, I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not know now and then doubt his interest in Jesus. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. John Calvin says, Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt, or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. So if If doubt is a regular part of the Christian experience, then how should we deal with our doubt? What should we do? The psalmist gives us a pattern or a rhythm for dealing with doubt. What must we do with our doubt? The first step is to be vulnerable enough to take them to God. And here's where our lanes can diverge. You see, it's not necessarily a problem to doubt. It's what you do with those doubts that can become a problem and lead to sin for you. Because I can doubt all day long and my doubt can take me into skepticism and just arrogance and pride because I believe that I have the way or my doubt can lead me to vulnerability to our Lord. Like we said, doubt can serve us or sink us. Let's see how it can serve us in Psalm 13. This is what our responsive reading was this morning. Doubt starts off with, the pattern starts with an address. Who does the psalmist address in Psalm 13? The Lord, the Lord. He says, how long, O Lord? His address is to the Lord and to the Lord alone. And then, what does he do with his doubt? He gives the Lord a complaint. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? If you have ever been through a season of doubt or a season of wandering, you know how difficult and dark our own thoughts can be. Our thoughts in our mind are often the, the worst inner monologue that we can play. There's been many a morning I've woken up and looked in the mirror and just thought, you're such an idiot. <laughs> it's just a part of it. Like, it's just like, you're so dumb. Like, what, what are you doing? Why did you explode on the kids last night? Or why didn't you do this? You are such an idiot. Like, our, our, our minds can be the worst place for us at times. But the psalmist, he makes an address to the Lord. He brings a complaint. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And then he makes a request. It almost can read like a demand. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. But he doesn't stop there with an address, a complaint, and a request. He finishes here with trust. The psalmist ends in Psalm 13. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I sing the Lord's praises, for he has been good to me. This psalm is gritty, but what it shows us is if we are honest about our doubts, we we will doubt our doubt. If we are honest with our doubts, we will doubt our doubt. Because we will remember that the Lord has been good to us. He is trustworthy and sure, or like we said a few Sundays ago, he is a met, he is faithful, he is loyal love to us. How can we process our hurt, emotion, and doubt with God? How can we be vulnerable enough to take them to God and ask hard questions? Because for the psalmist and the answer for Jesus is that believing is not seeing. Faith is not always sight on this side of eternity. Listen to what Jesus says. When he told Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friend, believer, believing is not always seeing. Believing is not always that the cancer will be removed. Believing is is not always that my debts will be taken care of. Believing is not always that everything will work out the way that I want it to. Believing is not seeing in those ways. This is the posture of David. His posture is, although I feel alone, I feel like you are being silent, I trust in your unfailing love. And this is the message of Jesus. This is the message of the author of Hebrews 11, chapter one. He says this, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So reminder number one, believing is not seeing. To believe is to confess that God is where God seems not to be. To believe is to confess that God is working where I don't know or I can't see, I can't make it out, connect all the dots that God is working there, but that I trust that he is. That I trust Roman eight, that he is, he's working all things together for the good for those that love him. I might not see how it's working, but I trust. That's belief. Belief is to confess that God is good when God seems to be bad. To confess that what is really real is the God that holds all things together that the God of the Bible became flesh and dwelt among us. And for all who receive him and believe him, he gave the right to be called children of God. And this is David in Psalm 13. I will trust in, my un, in your unfailing love. So reminder number one, believing is not seeing. Number two, believing is not a feeling. My emotions are like the tide. They are, they are constantly going in and out. They can swell with a rightly timed meal and they can recede with the absence of enough sleep. Faith is not a feeling. But our culture tells us that everything that you do, the goodness of life, is your feeling, is your experience. Our lives are constantly suffocating under the pressure of experience. Say it again. Our lives are constantly suffocating under the pressure of experience. Experience this, define your happiness. Do what makes you feel happy. And when that comes to faith and doubt, if we don't have the appropriate feeling, we might think, well, we didn't really believe because I don't feel it. I didn't experience this hallelujah moment. Like the Lord didn't appear to me like he did to Saul and rename me Paul. Like that, that, That experience didn't happen for me. Faith is not a feeling. Let's look at the text again. What happens when Jesus first appears, going all the way back up to chapter 20, when Thomas is not there, he comes through the door and says, peace be with you, and then what does he do for the disciples? He shows them his hands and his side. Now, I've, I've missed this a lot. What does it take for Thomas to believe? The exact same experience the disciples had. Thomas isn't asking for anything new. He just says, look, I'll believe if I get what you got. If I see what you see, if I get to touch his hand and put my hand in his side, then I'll believe. We look at Thomas and we label him a a doubter, but he really just wants the same experience that the disciples got. But this is important for us. I I think there's a reason why Jesus shows up and, and allows Thomas this mercy to see his hand in his side. But it's dangerous for us within the church if we demand the same Christian experience that someone else on the other side of the church has. It gets to dangerous ground because then we start playing possum with God. I'll believe if you do this. I just want the same experience that this person got, and then I'll believe, and then I'll serve. That's not the humble Christian, or the humble posture of a believer. Because Jesus says, Blessed are those who believe and do not see. Or Jesus is, in another way, saying, Blessed are those who are not going to have the same experience that you had, Thomas, and they still believe. Blessed are those who are never upset. We we want to say, uh, he does. Oh, sorry, Jesus does not say blessed are the eternally positive. Jesus does not say blessed are the ones who are never upset about anything. If we let our feelings take the wheel of our lives, if you let your feelings take the wheel of your life, they will crash your job, your marriage, your family, your relationship. And what a hope this is for the depressed, for the hurting, for the broken, for the weak, that the strength of your faith is not dependent on your feeling. It's not dependent on you to muster up uh, enough just mental uh, dexterity to get through it. The psalmist and chapter 34 says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. So if you're here this morning and you are, you are doubting, you're struggling, you're wrestling with depression, you're hurting, you're broken, you don't know where to turn, know this. The Lord is near you. The Lord is near you. He's near the brokenhearted. Your security is not in your ability to feel a particular way or to do a certain thing, but to trust in the risen Jesus. We can believe God and wrestle in our pain. Like Thomas, we we see and experience is what we see and what we experience is often what we deem real. Thomas saw the real torture of a real man who experienced real death and was laid in a real tomb. Real for us is often the freshly dug grave, the spouse who doesn't care, the child who won't listen. And those are the things that we can believe are real, that God is holding out on us. God, I've trusted you, but the wicked are prospering and I'm not. I've kept my way pure in vain. But the wonderful thing about this is even when we take all of our grief and our angst to Jesus, he doesn't scold you. Jesus doesn't scold Thomas for his doubt and he will not scold you. He walks into the room as the God who hears all prayers. So imagine this picture, Thomas with the disciples, and Jesus walks into the room. Thomas has not vocalized this to Jesus, but as Jesus is the God who hears all prayers, he looks to Thomas and says, touch my hand. Feel. Here's my side. Jesus knows that Thomas is doubting without even being in the room. How? Because he is the Lord. And through Thomas's doubt, we are, exam- we are invited to examine our own doubt. I am thankful for the man that doubted Easter. The doubt of Thomas gives us a reasonable testimony to believe. It shows us a real historical account of what happened. Disciples who were bewildered, confused, did not know what to think or expect, even though they saw all of this from Jesus. They saw him raise a dead man just a few weeks ago in Lazarus. And now Thomas is to the point where he says, I will not believe, I can't believe until I see him. His doubt gives us reason to believe that this is a legitimate testimony. Blessed are those who do not see and believe. So what does the story of Thomas teach us about the heart of Jesus towards those who doubt? I think this is the most profound thing that Jesus says in this passage. He says, peace be with you. Have you ever noticed that Thomas is the only person in all of scripture that has an unfavorable adjective in front of his name. We only know him as Doubting Thomas. But I think Thomas gets a bad rap. He could have just as easily been known as Devoted Thomas. Remember in John chapter 11, when it is known that people want Jesus dead and the danger is real for them to travel. What does Thomas say? He says, let's go with him so that we may die. There's a man with backbone. There's a man with courage. Where Jesus is going, I'm going. If he gets hurt, I get hurt. But we don't dub him devoted Thomas. We know him as doubting Thomas. Why? Because as flawed, failed humans, we prefer to remember people by the scandalous things that they have done. We prefer to remember people by the skeletons that are in their closet. Do you have an unfavorable adjective that you self-identify as? Maybe it's something that your parents said about you, never amount to anything, Nathan, lazy, Laura. Maybe it's something in your past that follows you, a particular sin that keeps nagging you. Jesus comes to Thomas through a locked door and the first thing he says before addressing his doubt, before addressing anything else about what happened in the last week prior, what does he say? Peace be with you, why? Because for Jesus, you are more than the skeletons in your closet. You are more than the sin that nags you and follows you around. Who are you? A child of God. What, is Mary? what does Jesus say to Mary? That he's ascending to my God, to my Father, and your Father. You are a child of God. Whatever adjective you put in front of your name, divorced, cursed, broken, lonely, drunk, you are more than the skeletons in your closet. And the story of Thomas shows us this. Jesus doesn't come in and says, how, how, Thomas, come on, really? What happened back there, man? Like you, I told you, like how many times did I tell you I was gonna raise from the dead? <laughs> I can't believe he doubted. No, he doesn't. He says, peace be with you. And in this, we see the mercy and gentleness of Jesus. And what is Thomas's confession? my Lord and my God. This is the first time in the Gospel of John we get a confession like this, and you know what happens, and this is incredible. You know what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, whoa, 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 (laughs) easy with the title, buddy. Let's back up a second. No, 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 no. No, Jesus doesn't correct him. It's not, what does Jesus say? It's not to disbelieve, but believe. Believe what? That Jesus is God. And I think many people struggle with Christianity for misunderstood or misapplied reasons. They hear of the God that is all-powerful and knows everything, and that can truly be a terrifying image. Especially for an all-powerful God who can do anything and knows all of my weaknesses and sin, it would be easy for me to view the state of my life as Asaph, that my afflictions are new every morning and probably well-deserved. And doubt offers an escape from this all-powerful, all-knowing God that knows everything about me. Doubt offers me to say, well, it's not me, it's just the world. But it doesn't offer peace. You see, in Jesus, we get the all-powerful, all-knowing, but we also get the all-loving God who can truly come in through the door unannounced and say, peace be with you. So, where do we go from here? I have three, I think three points of application for us. The first one is this, to be merciful to those who doubt. It's from Jude. Be merciful for those who are are wrestling with difficult questions of the faith. And maybe they know the tenets of the gospel. Maybe they would just like check and sign off on it, and I agree. But they're just really wrestling with the emotion and just the hard facts of life. There's a story I read this week about Steve Jobs. Now, uh, Steve Jobs, you know, is famous for our iPhone. He's really changed the world and how we operate forever. Jobs died a Zen Buddhist, but he didn't always believe that. You see, Jobs grew up in a Christian church, and he left it at the age of 13, because in 1968, a Life magazine article came out. And on the cover, it showed two starving children in Biafra, that Sunday, Jobs took it to church to confront the pastor. He asked, Does God know about this and what is going to happen to these children? The pastor answered, Yeah, God knows about that. And that was it. No answer, no apologetic, no sympathy, no reasoning. No, I I understand this is tough to process. After that conversation, Jobs left the church, never to return again. We we need to be merciful to those who doubt, that have really difficult questions. We need to be tender to those who are waffling. We need to come alongside them, and we need to offer up the prayers of the psalmist when they don't know what to pray. Number two, we need to develop a theology of weakness to develop a theology of weakness, and that might sound opposite, but let me me just show you. God's vulnerability is seen in his unrelenting pursuit of humanity. That that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That God didn't, when, when Jesus was led to the cross, when he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was being spit on, he did not spit back. So therefore, pride and defensiveness of a follower of Jesus is a contradiction. We can be vulnerable with God, with our doubts, and with our hurt. We need to be careful for those, especially our children growing up, or those in the church, or visitors visitors that come in that have a a legitimate question. We need to be careful not to answer, well, that's really silly, and if you just look at it this way, then you'd understand. Uh, That's not the way of our Lord. Earlier this spring, Russell and I were outside, and we were just playing, and it was dead calm, like dead calm. But it was one of those spring thunderstorms that just like pop up out of nowhere, and then all of a sudden, like leaves, branches, I mean, it was intense, lightning coming down, the trees were bending further than I thought they were allowed to bend, and Russell, terrified. And at the height of all of it, the power goes out. Now, Russell and the girls are, you can hear the shrill of daddy probably a mile away because they are so scared. And I told them, you don't have to be scared until daddy is scared. What I wanted them to do is I wanted them to match my confidence. I wanted them to know that they were safe with me. In a similar way, when the winds of life are swirling around you, things in our life bending further than you think they should, We don't create our own confidence. We match our Father's. It's not our strength we bring to him, but our weakness. Listen to what Paul says. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Develop a a theology of weakness that rests in your Father's strength. And then lastly, Take your doubts to Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Another plausible way to read this would be cast all your care on him, cast all your doubt on him, cast all your questions on him. Why? Because he cares for you. What do we do with our doubts? We examine them through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I don't have this on the screen, but it's just right under this passage with doubting Thomas and the disciples. John writes this in verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We wrestle and filter all of our doubts, all of our struggle, all of our pain through Jesus. And he is the gentle, merciful one that can handle them all. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray uh, this morning that we can be honest with our doubts, that we can be honest with our questions, and that we can trust you with them. Father, help us not to be so just mule-headed, that we just try and bear grit and bear it without developing this posture of weakness before you, that we can boast all the more gladly in our weakness because it's the power of you that rests on us. Father, it's it's not our ability to conjure up faith, but it's the work that you have done for us. So Jesus, I pray this morning that as a church, family, for visitors who are here this morning, that we can rest humbly in your work. And as the psalmist says in 13, when we are tempted to cry out, how long, O Lord, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? How long will you stay away from me? That we can end our prayers. I will trust in your unfailing love because we see your unfailing love displayed in the cross of Christ and his resurrection. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.